I want you to notice we're going to read about uh, 11 or 12 verses here. I want you to notice as we're reading them that the first couple verses talk about the congregation's responsibility towards the pastor. Then it's going to transition towards the congregation's responsibility towards one another. And then at the end, it's going to be the congregation's responsibility regarding worship and their attitude towards it. So we're going to pick it up in 1 Thessalonians 5, starting in verse 12. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Let's pray. Father, thanks for the privilege of being here this morning to worship you, to fellowship with one another, to gather corporately as brothers and sisters of you, our great Heavenly Father. And Lord, we ask that you'd open our spiritual eyes right now. Fill us with your spirit to hear from you, to hear from your word. Lord, we pray for the churches in St. Charles County, that they'd be faithful to preach your word this morning. And we thank you for the pastors that are faithful. May you continue to strengthen them. We thank you for our brothers and sisters that we partner with in Belize and ask that you continue to sustain them, continue to be with them, God, continue to walk with them, give them their daily bread. And we thank you, God, that you are so good to us time and time and time and time again. You are good to us. We thank you for that, and we love you. Amen. This passage gives us some, uh, some insight or maybe just some reasons for why it's good to uh, go through, verse by verse, a book of the Bible. Um, I've done that before. I've also done topical sermons. But one of, the, one of the nice things is when you're going through a book of the Bible and you come through different verses... Uh, it puts the pastor in a position where he needs to address those different topics. Sometimes it's topics that are easy to address. Sometimes it's topics that aren't so easy to address. Um, this is an easy one to address in the sense that it's talking about uh, just about authority, respect, um, esteeming. Um, but it, it might be a little awkward at, at sometimes because it's talking about how members are supposed to do that uh, towards the leadership, specifically pastors. Uh, but to be faithful and to preach the whole counsel of God, that means a pastor, regardless of whatever passage he comes upon, has to expound on that. Does that make sense? So what we're seeing here is instructions for the congregation and how they're supposed to interact with the pastor. Now here's what's interesting. Um, some have tried to postulate that it was too early in the life of, of the church uh, to have any type of formal structure. Um, to have any type of leadership, which is kind of ironic because 
they're arguing that from um, Paul, who was a leader, <laughs> writing letters to churches. But anyway, um, sometimes when I, when I hear some arguments, just to be kind of honest with you, um, and I'm not trying to, to brush off any, anyone's arguments, they might have some merit, but it is interesting that there's just some arguments. It just occurs to me like those people just haven't read their Bibles really well. Um, I kind of think this is one of them where people try to say, well, there wasn't really leadership in the early church. It's kind of hard to come to that when right here in First Thessalonians, he's talking about respecting those who are over you. Well, I mean, who would be over you in the context of the church except pastors? So he says to respect, and then notice actually it's in the plural, respect those who are over you, esteem them. So we get the idea of a plurality of leadership. And, and, and if you remember, going way back, I mean, 1 Thessalonians was, was Paul's, if it wasn't his first letter, is one of his first letters. This is um, very early on in his ministry. Also, you just have to think about it. Anytime you set up an organization, What's one of the first things you do? I mean, you kind of put some structures in place, right? Now, the church is unique. I understand that. It is completely unique. And some people would push back on calling it an organization. I would agree with that in part. But the point is, if you're going to put people together and have them focus on a particular task, Paul wouldn't just be like, oh, hey, uh, I I planted this church, and uh, see you later. I hope it works out. I mean, no, he'd, he'd give some structure to it. The other thing is, even if you start without leaders, maybe if you remember from school, you know, I hated group projects, by the way. You know why I hated group projects? Because I was usually the one that did all the work. (laughs) But you had group projects, and there'd be like three or four, and put you in a group of three or four, put you in a group of three or four. Inevitably, and the the teacher's just like, I just, just go at it. Well, inevitably, what happens? Even in that small little group of three or four, Inevitably, someone kind of takes the reins and, and takes some leadership. And, okay, why don't you work on this part and you work on that part? There's, there's structure that inevitably happens. The other thing we have to remember is Paul's pretty clear in Philippians in the very first verse, which was kind of just like right down the street from Thessalonica. All right? Okay, it wasn't just like right down the street. But uh, it was in range. It was, it was close to Thessalonica, and here's what he writes to the Philippians, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, this is how he starts his letter, who were at Philippi with the, the elders and the deacons. So, I mean, he's addressing the Philippian church, and two of the offices he calls out are the office of pastor and deacon. And then finally, you know, when Paul began his missionary work, even, you know, before he gets to Thessalonica, which is, around, which is Acts 17. In Acts 14, it says this, And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And Paul's normal practice was to set up elders, to set up leadership in each church. So there was, there was leadership. Now, there's, surprisingly, there's actually a couple of denominations today that, that actually don't, don't have leadership. There's no authority structure. There's no pastors. There's no deacons. Uh, if you look in, in uh, Wayne Grudem's theology book where he has different uh, illustrations of what the church government or structure looks like, 
Um, this one's my favorite because it's just like this, like a little, he calls it a little amoeba, right? Because there's no, there's no structure to what they're doing. It looks like a little amoeba that can bend and twist and, and turn to, into different forms. Um, but there was leadership in the New Testament. There was leadership in each church. Um, part of that is because God saw fit to appoint people to the task of shepherding. God saw fit to appoint people to the task of admonishing. God saw people to it fit to put people to admonish, to instruct, to teach. One of the things that we have when it comes to this idea of authority, to this idea of power, um, is people having an ambition towards the office of pastor. In fact, just hold your place in First Thessalonians because we're going we're gonna to come back to it. But look just briefly at First Timothy because I wanted to point this out. In chapter 3 of 1 Timothy, it says this. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. So having ambition, having a desire, aspiring to this office, the Bible says is a good thing. And actually, when I first got saved, um, I I wanted to be a pastor. I quickly realized that I, I wasn't something that I called upon myself, but I, I truly had the desire quickly after being saved that I wanted to be a pastor and be in the ministry. Having ambition towards something like this, as the word says, is a good thing. The question becomes, what's your motive for wanting the office? What's your motive? Some men want the office for the power and the authority that it brings with it. That's not a good motive. If you just are power hungry and you want to, you know, put your finger on people and, and squash them or lord your authority over them or have everyone else do the work and you're telling people what to do, no. Uh, but what about the motive of love, of instructing people, of wanting them to grow in the Lord, the motive of, of wanting to see people uh, come to know Jesus, the motive of loving people so much that you want to see them flourish, that you want to see them belong, that you want to see them go and make disciples, and that you want to be a vessel to be used by God to help accomplish that. Think about Moses for a moment. Was, was Moses a good leader? It's not a trick question. Yes, he was. But you're thinking like, well, there was that one time. That one time he hit that rock. But, but he was a good leader. Did he want to lead? He actually didn't want to lead. He's like, uh, I mean, you know, you read that passage in Exodus, it, it gets kind of awkward because he's like, it's like, Moses, you're talking to the God of the universe here, and you're kind of treating this situation a little flippantly. <clears throat> but it, he did not want to lead. Um, and he, didn't, he clearly didn't grab the scepter of power and yield it as he pleased. Um, in fact, if you think about it, whenever there, there were questions regarding him leading and people questioning it, what, what would he do? I mean, he'd appeal to the Lord, right? The elders challenge him at one point. He appeals to the Lord. Even his, his brother and sister challenge him. He appeals to the Lord. So sometimes people can read uh, this passage 
where, where we're back in First Thessalonians, they're reading this passage, and, and, and they can read from it control and power. They see it as having authority and, and using it to the extreme. Some leaders are tempted to lead with an overly strong hand. Here's how one author said it. This charge, however, is not a charge of power. Gospel ministry must follow the pattern of Jesus Christ who leads by serving. In the Gospels, Jesus taught that whoever wanted to be first in God's kingdom would be last. And at one point, he told his disciples, and he quotes from Mark chapter 10, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lowered it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever will be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So that's kind of the backdrop when we talk about this and the attitude that the, that the members of the body of Christ are supposed to have towards their leaders, they're supposed to have towards their pastors. It, it kind of presumes that <clears throat> we're practicing it in a biblical, righteous, holy, godly way. We're going to walk this out to the best of our ability. You have a pastor, hopefully, that is walking in righteousness before the Lord, and you have a congregation, hopefully, that is walking in righteousness before the Lord. Um, there will always be, there will always be, there will always be um, areas where we, where we struggle. There will always be areas where we get tripped up. There will always be um, issues that are being dealt with in the church that maybe any one member might not know about, but that the leadership know about. And they're trying to handle those situations delicately, kindly, graciously, and lovingly. This first command that is given to the members here, look back in 1 Thessalonians. It occurs in verse 12 where it says, respect those who labor among you. Now, unless you're reading the ESV, your version says something else. In fact, every single version uses a different word here for what I translated as respect. The NASB says appreciate. The NIV says acknowledge. The NKJV says recognize, and the King James says no. It shows the challenge that the translators had in trying to choose what they thought was the best word here. Why? Because in different contexts, it can actually mean different things, and in different contexts, certain uh, ideas of that come out more strongly. If you think of just, it it literally means, which is the, the path the King James follows, it just literally means to know. To know. Uh, but most most commentators will be like, well, I mean, to just say, uh, know those who labor among you, I mean, that's kind of like, what does that even mean? And that's the question that they ask themselves, and what does it know to mean them? And so then you look at different passages, and they came up with the word that they thought fit best. But let's just pause for a second with that to know, because that's literally what it says there. I actually think that's a good application for us to begin with, because you should know your pastor. And he should know you. If you want to be shepherded well, he needs to know you well. If you want to be uh, shepherded well, he needs to have information about you. He needs to have a relationship. You should know him, not just know of him. How does this occur and in, in what contexts? 
<clears throat> I mean, those are one of the things is, is as you do body life together. The pastor should be regularly involved in the ministries of the church. Now, as we talked about last week, that doesn't mean if there's 20 ministries in the church, the pastor's doing all 20 ministries. We got an awesome uh, children's play coming up this summer, and my involvement, I hope, is very minimal. <laughs> but that's because we've been blessed by people, God's gifted people. My, my gift is not that area that have done that. But I will play a part still, even in that play, because one of the things that we do when we, when we have the play is at the end, we'll come up and we'll give a gospel presentation. We use it as an outreach to, to family members and to, to friends that might have a, a kid in the play that come to see it. Uh, the point is, is that uh, you get to know the pastor in the context of the church and the ministries that are going on. Sometimes people have come to me over the years, hey, I want to get to know you better, I want to get to know you better. I'm like, hey, just be involved in the church. If you are involved in the church, you will get to know me because I'm involved in the church and I'm involved in church activities. Um, now, every person's not going to be like buddy-buddy with the pastor. Uh, you know, even Jesus, how many did he have? Twelve, right? He had greater numbers, but you hear about the twelve a lot. But then even in the midst of the twelve, how many were there? There's three, right? So he had an inner circle even amidst the twelve. So a relationship is going to look different for every single person here with the pastors, but there should be a relationship of some type. Someone actually emailed um, the church just a couple weeks ago. Um, They asked uh, just four questions. But one of the questions they asked was this, is it fairly easy to have a personal relationship with the pastor? Isn't that interesting? You're like, what were the other three questions? <laughs> but of the four that were very important to them, that was, a very, that was one of the four questions that was very important for them to know the answer and deciding if they were going to visit the church or not. Part of the respect that is talked about here is an honor. It's recognizing them as legitimate leaders of the church. Pastors in the church should be recognized as pastors. Um, I've heard some church members playing favorites with certain pastors at other churches. You know, they'll go up to a pastor and, you know, well, you're my, there, there might be two or three pastors on the staff. And, and they'll let this pastor know that, well, there might be two or three, but you're really my pastor. That's not good. That's not showing respect to the pastors. Um, one of the strengths of a plurality of, of leaders, of a plurality of elders or pastors is that each one of them is going to have strengths so that together they're strong. Each one of them is going to have weaknesses that the other pastor will ideally, hopefully, have strengths in that area to cover the weaknesses of that pastor. One of the strengths is that as a church, depending on the different size of a church, people can be adequately shepherded because you have enough so that if the pastor's over here tending to this particular sheep and there's a need over here, well, you have a, have a pastor or pastors that can step in and help with that particular situation. So in a church where there's plurality of elders, you might know one pastor a lot better than the other, but you still want to know all the pastors as best you can. Here's something key I want to point out. In Greek and Roman society, when you talked about leadership, when you talked about authority, 
it normally came down to two things, which really came down to one thing. It was birth and it was rank. What was your, you know, who were you born to? What family were you born into? And then what was your rank in society? Well, the rank normally played into who were you born to, right? Uh, the New Testament, when it comes to leadership, it doesn't care about that at all. In fact, Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians when he's talking about people who got saved. And, and what, he's like, not many of you were born to noble rank. Not many of you were, were rich. I mean, he just goes on and on, right? He's not, Paul's not concerned about that. God, God's not concerned about that when it comes to being a member of the body of Christ. Now, the early church sometimes got tripped up a little bit. That's why James is talking about, hey, the, the rich man comes into your congregation. You're, oh, yeah, have this great seat right up here by the front, right? Like the box seats of the church. And then the poor person comes in, you're like, oh, there's a spot for you in the back. So, I mean, the church uh, that James was addressing was struggling with that. But when we talk about leadership, it's not about birth. It's not about rank. That's not what it boils down to. Part of the reason you respect them is because of the work of what their work entails. Look at the end of verse 13. He says, esteem them very highly in love. Why? Because of their work. Now, I would actually uh, submit to you that part of the respect and the esteem comes from the position itself. But here he's, he's actually saying that there's another reason. You're doing it because of their work. Well, what, what's the work? It's the laboring, which we saw was hard work, the hard work that they're doing among you, that they're exercising the, the authority over you, that they're instructing, that they're teaching, that they're monitoring, that they're rebuking, that they're correcting you. They are ministering and shepherding you because of that. That's one of the reasons to respect and esteem them. Now, here's the thing. There can be disagreements and differences between members and pastors, but even in the midst of those disagreements and differences, respect and esteem must be present. Why? Because the Word commands it. And here's the thing. Pastors deal with so much that no one in the church except the other pastors will ever know the full extent to what they deal with or what they have going on in the church at any one moment. In your midst, there can be marriages that are struggling. There can be addictions. There can be families that are having issues with children. There can be mental health issues like depression and suicidal thoughts all going around in our midst. And the pastors are, are dealing with that. And then you're like, Pastor, why don't you have the time to get back to my email about that book recommendation? What will be, because he's busy ministering to the herding sheep. So that's the first word is to respect. The second word is esteem. Now, the, most translations have more agreement on the translation of this word. The NIV says, hold them in the highest regard, which is also a good translation. And what it means is this. Think about them in the highest way possible. And so hold them in the highest regard. Okay, should you recognize the leaders among you? Should you respect them? Yes, do that, but also esteem them greatly. It's interesting here because Paul takes the word for basically esteem and he puts not just one prefix on the word, he actually puts two prefixes. So he, he takes two prefixes and he attaches them to the word so it gives it the highest form of comparison possible. Like esteem them the highliest. Again, why? He's grinding it in the work that they're doing 
for the body of Christ. Leaders can be frequently in churches, they can be mocked, they can be scorned, they can be even looked down upon, they're treated with suspicion, you know, like, oh, what angle do they have for the decision they're making or the statement they're making? This is not to be the way the church acts or thinks. The flip side is also true. The church is not to exalt them in some way past what the scriptures authorize. So to esteem highly is not mean to exalt and put on a pedestal beyond being able to question them. It doesn't mean they're beyond uh, fault. It doesn't mean that you have to kowtow to their every whim and decision. That would be an abuse as well. There's no hero worship going on. And if there is, just uh, take me out for lunch, and I can dispel that very quickly in your mind. So those are the extremes, but the scripture here is very clear. Not just esteem, but esteem very highly. The Lord could not make it any more clear. Here's what one author said. What attitude should the local congregation adopt towards its pastors? They are neither to despise them as if they were dispensable, nor to flatter or fawn on them as if they were popes or princes, but rather to respect them and to hold them in the highest regard, in love because of their work. This combination of appreciation and affection will enable pastors and people to live in peace with each other. Yet in too many churches, they are at loggerheads. Don't you like that word, loggerheads? People that kind of butt heads. Which is painful to those involved, inhibiting to the church's life and growth, and damaging to its public image. By contrast, happy is the church family in which pastors and people recognize that God calls different believers to different ministries, exercise their own ministries with diligence and humility, and give to others the respect and love which their God-appointed labor demands. They will live in peace with each other. Friends, our, our culture does not do honor well. It doesn't do respect well. It doesn't do esteem well. This is not just in the church. This is with positions in society itself regarding civil life. This is positions in the family. Even if you just look at like your average sitcom and how dads are kind of mocked and are the, the stupid ones and the foolish ones and the ones that that don't know what's going on. Even if you look at the cartoons and the jokes that are constantly made about our political leaders. Even if you just look at your Facebook feed to see who's being made fun of at that particular moment, who's popular. Uh, we don't do well with respect and honor. But look at 1 Peter 2. Peter starts out in verse 13 of 1 Peter 2, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor, or honor, your version might say, the king. Now Peter could write this 
during the reign of one of the most wicked Roman emperors ever. And yet he calls on the believers to honor him. That should be our attitude with our leaders if we want to obey the Scriptures. Because of that, I am very, very, very reluctant. In fact, I make it my aim not to uh, make any jokes about any of our leaders, whether they're political leaders, civil leaders, leaders about jokes about dads and the family, anything like that, any type of leadership. Um, because our society has such a poor view, I think we need to kick back against that. And, and that's part of honor, is not participating in, in something just trifling like that. We're a society that does not view honor well. Let's be a church that does honor well. Notice the manner back in First Thessalonians that this is to be done. And it really puts us in the context of what we're trying to understand. Esteem them, verse 13, very highly in love. If you're doing it in love, that's going to make sure you don't exalt uh, the pastor too high. If you're doing it in love, it's going to make sure that you have the proper uh, esteem and respect for him. You're not going to put him too low. You're not going to put him too high. Why? It's going to be done in love. You were going to walk this out in love. And then the third thing that we're commanded here, it's right at the end of verse 13. He says, be at peace among yourselves. Which really hints at the, the theme that we have for our church for this year, which is unity in community. Be at peace among yourselves. Is he talking about them being at peace with the pastor or with one another? You might think he's talking about being at peace with, with the pastor. That might be an application from it. But specifically, he's actually starting to address specifically the members themselves. Be at peace among yourselves. If he wanted to talk about being at, at peace uh, with them, he, he probably would have just said, be at peace with them. So be at peace among yourselves means the members, which includes the pastors, the members need to walk in peace. Whenever there's more than one person involved, there can be disunity. Just ask any married couple. There's more than one person involved, there can be disunity. And whatever unity you have can be dismantled rather quickly. One of the roles of the member that we can see from this verse is that the member helps foster peace. The member sees to it that it is sustained, nurtured, and grows. It's interesting, even Aristotle, the great philosopher, he thought that this theme of peace was so important, he included it as one of the five principal themes when he talked about rhetoric, having peace. And even the unbelievers understood the importance of it. And let's think of the Thessalonian church for a moment. Everything that we've studied so far, and maybe taken a peek into Second Thessalonians a little bit, where could disunity occur in the Thessalonian church? Think about some of the issues Paul's already addressed. He, he addressed uh, sexual issues in 1 Thessalonians 4. Right? There could be disunity there, disagreements on how those things should be carried out. There could be disagreement on end-time theology. Oh, no, no, people never disagree on end-time theology. People, churches never split on that stuff. So end-time theology. Now he's going to get, after this section, he's going to get into the worship in the church. Now, people never argue about 
the, the sound. Is it too loud? Is it too soft? We never have people go to our sound booth and tell them to turn it down or turn it up. We never have any issues with people complaining about how bright or how dark it is. That disunity, right? And then 2 Thessalonians, you, get, you can have disunity regarding jobs and people's work roles. We could, we could name even more. But that's where disunity could occur. Friends, community loyalty is the best defense against attacks from inside and outside. Community loyalty. Not community uh, loyalty to the pastor, but loyalty to the church community at large. Loyalty basically to one another. You know, I'm going to be faithful to my brothers and sisters. I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. Uh, I'm not sure I, I completely understand that particular situation, but until I do, I'm not going to pass a harsh judgment on that. I remember years ago, uh, one of the worship leaders here, I was on the worship team, and one of the worship leaders made some passing comment that I misconstrued. I didn't know I misconstrued it at the time, but man, it just, it just really bothered me and kind of ate me up. And I was like, I'm gonna have to, I just got to go and I got to talk to them. This is just, it's eating me up inside. And it, it was, I mean, he, he didn't know it at the time, but it was causing some, some disunity. So I went, and lo and behold, I mean, he was like, oh, wow, I, I totally did not mean it at, at, in that way at all. And I was like, oh. and then once he explained it, I totally understood what he was, what he was getting at with his comment. Okay? So sometimes it's just given, you know, we, in our house, we, just say, we call it given the benefit of the doubt. If you're not sure how to construe something, then you give them the benefit of the doubt that maybe they meant it in, a, in the best positive way possible. So that doesn't mean a loyalty to the pastor, but it's loyalty to the church community. You're resolute in that you won't let trifling matters divide you. You won't let trifling matters get between you, and you'll work to make sure it doesn't divide others. Look, anytime a topic comes up, whether it's a primary importance, secondary importance, tertiary importance, like anything that you're talking about, you can always put and say positive things about that particular person, experience, concept, idea, philosophy, or you can say negative things about it. And some people, it's like they went to college and got like a major in being a critic. Okay? Being a critic, uh, I think Dale Carnegie says it like that, that's the easiest thing to do. Anyone can criticize, condemn, complain. Those are his like three C's. Like anyone can, can do those three things. That doesn't, doesn't take a degree. It doesn't take much brains to, to criticize someone, to condemn someone, to complain about something. You know, and then he kind of flips it around and like focus on the positive. Well, it's the same thing with us. We, we, can, we, we as fallen creatures, especially if, if we're not walking in the spirit, we can have a tendency to try to focus on the negative. That's not what we're supposed to do. We should focus on the positive. Whatever is pure, whatever is righteous, whatever is holy, what are we supposed to do? Think on such things. Think on such things. Every church has its flaws. Every leader has his flaws. Every person has their flaws. But here's the thing. Every church has their strengths. And every leader has his strengths. And every person has their strengths. That's what we want to focus on. That's what we want to focus on. Not that you just sweep those other things under the rug, that you ignore like they're not there, 
But you can take one of two approaches when you're talking with people when, when you're dealing with issues. And, the, you know, it's like <clears throat> our approach determines a lot of times how that situation is going to work out, at least in our own hearts. And if we're positive and working towards it and thinking the best and, and praying and walking in righteousness and the other person is doing the same, then those issues can be worked through in righteousness and holiness. Friends, you possess a supernatural ability to live at peace with one another. You do. You have the Holy Spirit. So you have a supernatural ability that unbelievers do not have. If he's living inside of me and he's living inside of you, then, then we can be at peace and we can walk in that peace. So we have a supernatural ability to live at peace with other believers. It's not possible on our own, but it is possible with the Spirit living inside you. Amen? So the motivation for the respect and the esteem, the, the esteem is what the pastors are doing in your midst. They're working hard. They're exercising authority. They're admonishing. Here's what one author said. He said, In the New Testament, church honor is not given to people because of any qualities that they may possess, but only on the basis of the spiritual task to which they are called. They're not given because of any qualities due to birth or social status or natural gifts, but again, on the basis of the spiritual task to which they are called. Every believer, every believer, every believer has authorities in their life. You have authorities at work. You have authorities at home. You have authorities at the church. And some people in, in each of those spheres, and you know them in those different spheres, they love power and they grab all that they can. And others hate it and shirk it as best they can. How you respond in those situations with the different opportunities given to you, how you respond as the authority or maybe the person under authority, says much about where your walk with the Lord is at. I remember there was a situation <clears throat> years ago um, at a church I went to, and one of the pastors uh, dealt with the situation. The, actually, the pastors dealt with the situation, and, and I was like, that was really interesting, the way they dealt with that situation. I just wasn't sure about how they dealt with it. I questioned it. But I, a passage like this caused me to, to respect and esteem. But I still had a question. And I went and talked to them about it. I think that was the appropriate thing to do. You know what was interesting? Because I still didn't agree necessarily with how they walked that situation out. What was interesting was about four years later, I was talking to the non-pastor involved in that situation, and they shared what was going on at the time and why the pastors had made that particular decision regarding them. And all of a sudden, the whole situation made sense. They were privileged uh, to information because they were the party involved in the situation that they hadn't shared with anybody. 
And a lot of times, pastors are in difficult, challenging situations trying to walk things out, and people don't always have all the information at hand. And sometimes, I'm just going to be honest with you, it comes down to a trust issue. Do you trust your pastors? Do you trust them? Do you trust that, that they're walking in righteousness as best they can by the power of the Holy Spirit? Do you trust that they are laboring for what's best for you, for your family, for this church? Do you trust that they are straining and striving and endeavoring to hear from the Lord as they shepherd this church? If the answer is yes, then sometimes when you might have a question, if it needs to be cleared up, go talk to them. But sometimes those answers aren't always satisfactory. Why? Because we have to protect vulnerable sheep. We have to protect people, and we want to protect. It talks about love covers. We're going to cover. So if you don't need to know about a situation that's going on over here, we're not going to inform you about it. Love covers. So I want to encourage you to walk with that trust when it comes to this area. Now, <clears throat> it's interesting because the book that we, we just finished up going through in the life groups, there's actually a section on that. You know, and it, it actually talks about you know, how often should a pastor talk about, oh, you just need to trust me on this. You just, I've actually been hesitant to kind of play that card, so to speak. And I actually think I've, I've not played it as much as I should, to be honest with you. I've just hope, hoped for the best in some of those situations instead of just asking people straight out, hey, I need you to trust me on this. Because I was in a position not to give out information that would really clear the situation up for them. But it wouldn't be protecting the vulnerable sheep. So trust is key in the relationship with the pastor. Guess what? That goes back to the very first point I made about knowing the pastor. If you don't know him, if you don't have that relationship, uh, how much harder will it be for you to trust him when that situation pops up? And, and let's just take it even a step further. Uh, trusting with a situation you're not involved in might be somewhat easy for some of you, but how much more so in a situation that you're directly involved in? And you're like, oh man, I'm not sure this is the best way to go about things it is going to be coming down to trust. And you're going to be able to better trust as you better know the pastor or pastors of the church. You will know and you will see their heart for you. You will know and you will see that they have your best interests at heart. You will know and you will see that they want to see you flourish. They want to see you walk in righteousness before the Lord. So these issues of respect and esteem, let's just be honest for a moment with ourselves and say that, that many of us, we struggle with that. Not saying necessarily to me or to justice, but just in general, a respect and an esteeming for those that God has placed over us, whether it's a boss, whether it's a pastor. There's a struggle. And we need to go before the Lord and ask for his help on that. We need to go before the Lord and repent of our falling short on that. We need to go before the Lord and ask him to fill us with his spirit and to think rightly about that and to illuminate our hearts on that issue so that we can think rightly and then we can walk it out rightly. 
a church that can respect and esteem its leadership, that can walk in peace. It's like it, it puts a shield about it from the attacks of the outside. It puts a shield about it from the attacks of the enemy. Uh, the enemy loves to create disunity. It's like one of his spiritual gifts, if he had one. It would be creating disunity. And you know, Proverbs talks about, you know, there's six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven he despises, right? You, you know what <clears throat> the key one is? Someone who causes disunity. I mean, church after church after church after church has been destroyed because of disunity. And it's not always to blame on, 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 on this member, that member, that member. Yeah, many times the pastor plays a pretty key role, and he's caused the disunity. But, it's, but the enemy is always looking for a crack in the armor and to seize upon it and to attack that point right there. Or to attack that point right there. Wherever it's weakest, that's what the enemy's going to do. He sees a weakness, he's going to exploit it. It's kind of like sports 101, all right? You have a, a team and they have a weakness. Think about basketball. If they can't guard the three, what are you going to exploit and do? You're going to shoot the three. Think about football. If they got a, a weak left tackle, which way are you running the ball? Okay? <clears throat> it's the same idea. It's not a hard concept. There's nothing like, wow, that's amazing. No. The enemy's going to attack where we're weakest. So if we are not walking in a, in a strength of unity, if we're not giving the benefit of the doubt to our brother and sister, if we're not praying for them and, and walking in love towards them, the enemy will seize upon that and attack very swiftly. He loves disunity because it can disrupt the work of the Spirit quicker than anything. That's why Paul talks about it so often. Walk in unity, walk in unity, walk in unity. Be in unity. That's why we need the Spirit to have the unity. We need the Spirit to fill us to walk in that unity. And as we walk in that unity, listen, a church that is walking in unity can accomplish great, great, great things. It puts, it puts itself in a position to continue to grow, to continue to flourish, and to continue to go and make disciples, to continue to go and make a difference for the kingdom, to continue to walk in the ways that Lord, the Lord wants us to walk. So we want to respect, we want to esteem, and we want to be at peace. Let's pray. Father, we do pray for the unity of our church, that we would walk in unity, that we would endeavor to keep the unity. We pray, Lord, you would give us a biblical unity here in our midst. Protect us, Lord, from the enemy who wants to steal. He wants to get in there and mess things up. He wants to see lives destroyed. He wants to see people taken down. He wants to see churches worship disrupted. So we ask, Father, you'd protect our unity. We ask, Spirit, that you'd fill us to walk in unity. Let us do so, as it says here, in love. 
We thank you, Father, that unity is truly possible through your Son. Amen.